I'm Rob Hopkins, and this is Imagination Taking Power, a podcast where I share with you conversations, insights, and aha moments on my journey towards writing a book about imagination. How does our relationship with digital technologies alter our relationship with the future, with the present, and with our imaginations? It's a question we've reflected on in various podcasts and interviews in this series. One of the books that most influenced me on this question was Douglas Rushkoff's Present Shock. Rushkoff is a writer, documentarian and lecturer whose work and writing focuses on human autonomy in a digital age. He's a prolific guy. Fifteen other books, including the brilliantly titled Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, documentaries such as Generation Like and Merchants of Cool, a podcast called Team Human, graphic novels. He's also worked as a stage fight choreographer and once played keyboards for industrial noise art terror combo Psychic TV. He also won the beautifully named Neil Postman Award for Career Achievement in Public Intellectual Activity and is currently Professor of Media Theory and Digital Economics at CUNY Queens in New York. It was a real honour recently to be able to speak to him via Skype. I started by asking what he meant in Present Shock when he wrote, Our Society Has Reoriented Itself to the Present Moment. Present Shock was really looking at the... uh the way that uh, I guess digital media in particular has changed the temporal landscape. It's changed the way we the way we contend with time. The the ancient Greeks had two understandings of time, really two words for time. One was chronos, which is time on the clock. You know, what time did you crash the car? I crashed the car at four seventeen. And this other idea called kairos, which is more like time as as a readiness uh, what time are you going to tell your father you crashed the car you know it doesn't matter what time on the clock is you're going to tell him when he's feeling good you know after he's had his drink but before he's opened his bills so that's a kind of time that's not a chronological time so much as a a, a readiness time a, an intuitive time and what what i believe is that digital technology has emphasized this more chronological time and disconnected us from some of the more intuitive or natural bottom-up understandings of time you know anything that's not really a metric anything that's not measurable goes away in uh, the the digital uh, simulations or representations of the world we live in and so there's that and that also for me, combines with the way that the devices and platforms of the attention economy really assault us. They understand human time as eyeball hours, the number of you know moments that we spend uh, glued to our screens. So that's the way that value is extracted from us now, is in terms of time. So we took the internet, which was an asynchronous device that really let us do things in our own time, we could answer email in our own time rather than like a telephone, an analog telephone, where if it's ringing, you have to pick it up then or you miss the call. Digital really has let us stack things. Digital would let us, uh, uh, would really give us more command over time. But instead, we've taken these devices and strapped them to our bodies and have them interrupt us. And, uh, you know, whenever someone tweets about us or has an up or an app wants to notify us about something that may or may not be of any importance to us. So 
we end up living in this state of perpetual emergency interruption where we can't focus. So that's really what I mean by uh, the present changing, that the present used to be where you actually were, you know, what where your body was, where your mind was. And now we think of the now as what's happening on our devices, as what was that last tweet, what was that last update, as if we need to keep up with the now, where in reality that digital now is trying to keep up with us. We are in real time. They are not, um, uh, they are not in real time. So it's sort, of, it's sort of that shift in sensibility where we emphasize these these digital assaults as if those are what's really happening as compared to what's happening between us and our friends at any moment you you wrote you wrote about how the how before the invention of these technologies the only people who were in that state of uh, uh what you call always on uh and in that sort of flight or fight urgency of all this stuff coming in all the time were 911 responders air traffic controllers and they worked very short shifts what is that and and the levels of cortisol that, that this puts into our system what is that doing to us do you think psychologically how is it changing our how our brains work and, and how we function well i think you know when you're in the fight or flight mode when your your bloodstream's being dominated by norepinephrine really um you you end up I mean, in certain ways, it's it's interesting. It you you end up emphasizing almost a a, a systemic, architectural uh, perspective on the world. You know, like those scenes in um, in the new Sherlock Holmes movies where everything stops and he they superimpose these diagrams over the screen of how, who's going to punch who when and his mind kind of works ahead. You know, you, you get into that sort of state where you're looking at everything schematically like that. I mean, the problem is that when you look, when you're trying to connect things in that schematic way, you often uh, see connections that aren't there. It leads to a much more um, conspiracy-driven, paranoid uh, state of mind where you're looking for how are things alive? Who's in charge? Who's the bad guy? What's happening to me? And it's um, it makes it much harder to uh, bond with other people. You know, if you're looking where their hands are, um, you know, to see if they're grabbing a weapon, you're not looking in their eyes. You're not experiencing your vulnerability or connection. You're not likely to uh, uh, mirror other people's breathing and forge real rapport with them. You know, you're much more likely to start seeing everyone and everything else as objects, you know, and yourself as a subject in, in defense against this. You know, plus just being in a, in a heightened state when you're always re reacting to the impulses that are coming in around you. I mean, without even, you know, you're not even responding for one. But when, you, when you're when you reacting, you can't really make long-term plans. You can't, um, you can't be driven by your greater values. You really have to put your, your big values aside and confront the, the immediate, you know, challenges that are, that are coming at you. It's more like, you know, space invaders or something. And uh, if you take, uh, so John Dewey had a 
definition of imagination where he said it was the ability to look at things as if they could be otherwise. What does living in present shock mean for our imagination? What does it do to our imagination being in this kind of state? Um, I mean, I think the imagination is always active. So I wouldn't say it, it, it kills imagination, you know, so much as directs it you know, towards certain sorts of things. So instead of envisioning, you know, a world, you know, that's functioning the way we want, you know, instead of doing that kind of big picture understanding of the world, we end up in much more uh, uh, immediate details. You know, if you're, if you're being mugged, you're not thinking at that moment about how do we systemically reduce crime by reducing poverty and dissatisfaction. You know, you're really just thinking, how do I keep the point of that knife out of my body? Yeah. And that, you know, and that, so you get, you, you end up, you know, using your imagination to confront the immediate crisis after crisis after crisis rather than, um, kind of uh, softening your gaze and recognizing the greater patterns, which is what human beings do. You know, the kind of imagination that we do in crisis is the sort of imagination, you know, that a deer does or something, you know, <laughs> imagines, you know, some predator jumping on it so it runs away, you know, as opposed to, you know, using, uh, using our uniquely human, uh, uh, you know, pattern instincts. So, so our imagination sort of gets co-opted and loses its sort of longer-term perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think the kind of imagining we need as a society is the kind of imagining that, you know, people did around the campfire after a day of fighting off predators and they think, well, you know, maybe we could build a fence or maybe we could... Uh, you know, have shifts for people to guard us at night so the rest of us can sleep uh, more soundly. Or maybe we should move to the top of that mountain. You know, it's, it's, it's that uh, collaborative, uh, uh, it's kind of a collaborative, you know, I hate to call it blue sky because it's grounded, but... Uh, uh, you know, more the ability to do more uh, uh, larger movements, you know, to, to try to create systemic change. Really, I feel like it requires um, some pause, you know, some respite from the constant struggle to fight off uh, immediate dangers. And when technology companies are leveraging our instinctual response to immediate danger as a way of getting our attention, you know, with red buttons or flashing screens or whatever it is that BJ Fogg at the Keptology lab at Stanford has learned will put us into fight or flight mode. Um, it's, it's impossible to do that sort of thinking. Mm. And uh, I mean, when I when I was growing up, we all the magazines and books that we had were all about the future, 
and the future is going to be this and the future is going to be that and and as you, you you write about how the 20th century was characterized by futurism and the 21st century by presentism you know one of the one of the places that i very much where a lot of my work comes from is around climate change and responses to climate change and how communities and activists can can mobilize people around climate change and a lot of that is around having a vision of the future because business as usual is going to wipe us off the place face of the planet so we have to be able to imagine something else we have to have be able to populate that future with possibilities and things that are really enticing and it feels we want to move towards it how dangerous is it when when we lose the future when the when when the future slips out of our fingers um they're sending me messages you see they're coming in right now it's just as the example of it uh, my ability to ponder is getting you know it's because we're using a screen that i haven't adequately fortified it's the onslaught yeah. of notifications and the other problem is i mean there's a way to do this on skype that so we're using skype to talk and that means that some icon of mine in the skype universe indicates that i'm that there's an instance of me in the skype world so now people are pinging at that to say hello or to ask me for things. Let me see. It's a minefield. It's a minefield. All right, so now I'm switching to invisible. It's a minefield. <laughs> so it's really, it's that. I mean, I don't know if that answers the question, but it feels like the universe just answered it. Um, uh, uh, technologically, if not, if not spiritually, if the future just becomes completely clouded with dystopia and complexity and concern and fear and we can no longer see a way into it and we see the rise of all these movements like Make America Like It Used To Be In The 1950s or Brexit, which is kind of our version of the same thing, and everybody right. starts retreating backwards into kind of retrotopian uh, sort of approaches or dystopian kind of things because because we've lost that connection to the future. I guess it was just any reflections you might have on what happens to a culture when it loses that sense of the future and, and, and what the danger is of that. Well, I mean, we weren't doing that well with the future anyway. You know, by the, by the 90s, it was, you know, Wired Magazine and Futurism companies and consultants really using the pace of change as a way of frightening corporations into giving them, you know, futurism contracts. So uh, I feel like the future was was overleveraged and exploited by, you know, people who wanted to make money. And that on a certain level, you know, falling back into the into the present is a good thing, you know, because the present can reconnect you with your intuition, with with who you are, but the, the way we've done it uh, is we've, we've, we've fallen more into that's what I'm calling present shock instead of the present. We're in the sort of impatient, you know, two-year-old demands of, uh, you know, the Tea Party or Brexiters or Trumpists. 
who I don't like the way things are. I want it better now. I want my thing now. Um, so rather than than uh, exerting some autonomy or authority over their situation, experiencing where they genuinely are in the present and and navigating toward a better path, they just demand impatiently for more stuff or more something now. You know, and that's um, you know the childlike impatience of a presentist versus say, you know, the Occupy movement or um, uh, the permaculture movement where people are understanding a different sort of now that we are currently enacting the future, that the choices we make now are creating the future, that the future is not something you prepare for, but something you create in your moment-to-moment decisions. So how do we expand that awareness? How do we truly embrace the present? You know, the, the, the sorts of reactionary movements that you're talking about are, um, are, you know, highly, uh, reactive, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're reactive, impatient, uh, uh, rage filled, uh, movements that are, um, well, they're, they're not fueled by true intuition. You know, they feel like if they feel it in their stomach, if you're feeling angry, then, then you're close to your real human core. And I would argue, no, that they're not, they're, 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 what they're doing, they're exercising just, you know, kind of childlike anger and then justifying it as some kind of a shooting from the hip, uh, you know, uh, uh, more intuitive mm. approach to the world. You know, so, you know, a Trump supporter would say, look at him. He's, you know, he's going on that that deeper instinct that makes us, you know, that's a, that's our true inner wisdom. And it's like, no, he's he's exercising surface instinct. You know, that that first level of of, you know, animal instinct. But he's not activating the frontal lobe, you know, not the neocortex. It's the instinct of the of the the reptile brain of the brain stem fight flight kill not fire not fire um but not the the he hasn't moved through either the compassion of the of the mammalian lobe or the logic of the frontal lobe he's not there mm-hmm. and the what does all of this mean for for um activism when we when we're trying to uh, brings people's attention to the challenges of the world and people's attention spans are completely shot to bits and spread very thinly across various... Uh, my 18-year-old my son told me the other day that actually even at home if he watches a film, he doesn't read books anymore, but he uh, when he watches a film, he also is editing photos and doing his social media while he's watching a film. He not even watch a film without doing various things. What, what, what does this mean, do you think, for, for, for activism going forward from here? I mean, I guess a lot of things. I mean, it's really easy for for activists to 
I always get in trouble when I talk about this, but I think it's really easy for activists to be tempted into one of the the ghettoized corrals that have been created by commercial social media or by neoliberalism to divide us. So, you know, if I want to be an activist as, you know, a gay, black, lesbian, whatever, you know, from the South um, and find just those the, those intersectional uh, uh, concerns at the expense of solidarity with all of the other people who are being oppressed by capitalism and racism and neoliberalism, um, then they've divided and conquered us successfully. So I think the problem with this kind of highly divided, multitasked, um, oh, there's my wife, with this multitasked reality um, is, uh, is that it becomes really difficult to forge solidarity or to make a movement. See, it's still coming. <laughs> so is there anything we can do about that? Kill them all. <laughs> just you and me. We'll be the last. You can just kill everybody. <laughs> um, no, I mean that's where I mean that's where I think people want to do right. Is is the current solution seems to be let things keep going as they are, contend with a geopolitical or environmental disaster of unprecedented proportions that wipes out 80% of the planet. So then there's enough resources for the remaining 20% of us, um, which is such a, a terribly dark approach, but it's the one that the wealthiest people I know think is the most likely. You know, that's why they're buying land in New Zealand and Anchorage, Alaska. They're using climatologists to help them predict what are the safest areas to um, to reside in um, over the next century, hmm. and they're preparing for that. These various Plan Bs. You know, I had a um, a CEO of a of a firm um, asked me. Uh, uh, you know, privately after I did a talk, he uh, asked me later in the in the green room uh, that he's looking for to figure out how to maintain control or authority over his security staff after an apocalypse. In other words, what he wanted to know is how do you motivate your guards to guard your compound when money doesn't mean anything anymore? You know, can I help him devise a social ecosystem through which he could maintain his authority over people, uh, you know, in that in that in that scenario? Or does he just have to program robots to defend his perimeter? What did you say? Uh, um, you know, I, I went through some sort of uh, walking dead like scenarios with him where you know we spoke about well if he was the only one that knew the combination to 
the storage facility where the food was, or if keeping him alive, you know, was the only way to keep, you know, a succession of doors opening, you know, in this sort of automated uh, uh, supply dispenser, uh, uh, you know, but, but, you know, the, the most, I, I tried to convince them that spending their time and resources on what to do as plan B was taking time and resources away from figuring out how to avoid it being necessary Absolutely. to execute a plan B. You know, it's something I've called the insulation equation, where people think, how much money do I need to earn to be able to insulate myself from the reality I'm creating by operating in this way? You know, versus how much energy and time and money would it take just to make the world a place where I don't feel the need to insulate myself from it? Mm-hmm. And that's a part that never, uh, that never occurs to these people. In a way, they want to multitask. You know, they want to have insurance against uh, against the bad. But all of that focus on those scenarios, you know, in some ways helps helps bring them about. It's been very interesting, I think, over the last over the last few months, seeing the you know, there's a lot of research coming out about the psychological impacts of social media and Facebook and people who started Facebook and designed things saying, I don't touch that shit. I don't let my children anywhere near it. What have we done? We've created something absolutely horrific and horrendous. The research around attention spans and so on. Do you think if we, if we look back on the, the sort of digital age of the last 20 years as, as being an experiment, do you think in another 20 years in the future we'll think that it was all worth it? Well, because it depends how it works out, right? Do you think now, looking at looking at where we're at now, on balance, how are we doing? Well, you mean specifically in terms of the the development of digital age technologies? Yeah, on on our attention spans, on our culture, on our sort of uh, yeah. I mean, I think we I think we underestimated the the speed and extent to which um, you know business would uh, infiltrate these you know social and cultural technology spaces you know in the early days of the net you know business couldn't be convinced to even participate we spent years just trying to get, you know, AT&T to take over the net because the government didn't want to pay for it anymore. And they didn't want it. You know, they didn't even want it. They could own, they could be owning the internet and they, um, they turned it down. So, uh, it was unexpected that it would become the, the, the province of business. And I think but once it once they came on, and uh, you know by seeing what they did, which was basically spam, is how they started. I, I think it became pretty clear pretty quickly that they were going to use this to, you know, arrest human cognition. But that was the object of the game. That's why I wrote in like 1998. I wrote a book called Coercion, where I was saying, look, all of the techniques of traditional advertising and mind control. And, 
and cult leadership are migrating to the net. And if we don't do something about it, we're going to end up with a very confused and manipulated population. And I mean, that was 20 years ago. People just laughed at it. They said I was being paranoid. Wall Street Journal essentially called me crazy. Um, they were most upset that I suggested that um, that some of the finance companies were selling products that they were betting against, which I knew. Um, and I had the evidence, and they said it was just untrue, that that would be against the law. And, of course, we found out by 2007 that's exactly what Wall Street was doing, and it's part of the reason why the whole thing crashed. So, um, no, we, we, we screwed up. It's not um, it's not completely over, but we've ended up over the last 20 years um, disabling the cognitive and collaborative skills that we would have needed to address a collective problem like climate change. Um, so um, for that reason alone, uh, I'm concerned that that. Uh, we screwed it up. That's a pretty damning. If, if if your evaluation of twenty years of the digital age that it has screwed up the collaborative, cognitive and collaborative. What did you say? Tools. Yeah. Uh, capacities. Yeah. Uh, that's not great, is it? No. <laughs> no. It's sad. It's sad, you know, and it it requires, you know, those of us who see these possibilities you know, to think differently about our children even. You know, I had to content myself. I don't think it's going to happen quite so soon, but the idea that, you know, my, my child's made it to 13 now, and I'd prefer her to have had these 13 years than not to have existed at all. You know, and I'm, I'm still thankful to, you know, creation and the cosmos for uh, having... Uh, for her having had her experience, but um, but it's still it's still a pity if we can't uh, you know keep civilization going you know if we're really that um, that foolish you know all that said you know when I see the uh, you know teen rebellion against um, guns now in America. Um, it does make me think that uh, the kids have adapted, that that to many of them, the news on social media, uh, it looks to them like a, a email from a, a Nigerian scammer looks to us. Mm. That they, that they, even if they can't quite distinguish between, um, you know, real and fake news. On Facebook, I think they understand that there are these real publications like, you know, the New York Times or CNN, and then there's all this insane stuff, and that there are ways to, uh, to kind of parse reality from this and to, to, to take charge. So hopefully they're going to, you know, they're the they're the shape of things to come, a much more sensible and and reasoned, uh, you know, reasoned approach. So, so in terms of in terms of trying to move things in the direction where those cognitive and collaborative tools are strengthened and reinforced, 
and given new life. Is that something that we can still do online or is it something where we need to be building more and more of a space in our lives, in our communities, in how we relate to each other, where we're step putting a foot out of that, do you think? Can we can we trust the 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 tools that have created that problem to solve that problem? Facebook are now talking about, hey, we're going to make it much more social and about community, and we're going to do, you know, can we actually trust those tools to fix this, or do we need to fix this ourselves and step outside of that? I mean, both. There's there's you know no reason not to use networking tools. You just have to understand what the tools are and how they work. So if you understand that Facebook will not let you reach your own followers on the platform, then you understand what it's for and what it's not. You know, you can't use Facebook as a communications tool. If you create a, you know, the group of activists to change blah, blah, you know, and you have 10,000 people signed up and you want to tell them all, hey, we're going to go gather at such a place. We're going to go do this. Hands, all hands on deck. You have to understand that because of the way Facebook works, you're not allowed to reach the people that signed up for your notices, that you, have, that you would have to pay to reach them. And even when you pay, you might not reach all of them because that's not what Facebook is for. So as long as you understand that, oh, okay, Facebook's not for that. Facebook's a different thing. Facebook's there to help companies influence people. Um, then you realize, oh, no, we need to use a, you know, we need to create a Google group or something that people sign on to so then they receive messages. You know, that's fine. It's just a matter of understanding what tool do I need and then not using a tool or online just because it's cool. What do you need to accomplish? And then find the tools that will let you accomplish what you need. You know, and at the same time, remember that human beings in real space together find power you know they find a, a kind of power that they don't find otherwise it's what you know in the civil rights movement when people would come to a church and sing together um it does things it's not magic it's not um you know a cult necessarily it's just um the way human beings socialize that you know, the way we forge solidarity you know and if you don't um, kind of um, leverage our evolved uh, uh, capacity for solidarity and and social coherence, then um, you don't end up, you know, uh, uh, you don't end up generating the sort of power that we need. Um, you don't end up making sense. I mean, at a certain point, you have to accept that being human is a team sport and that, that, that we, we connect live and in person with one another. That's not uh, a weakness, but a strength. And you can do that at the same time as you use the Internet to organize various things. One of the questions I've asked everybody that I've spoken to with this was if you if it had been Douglas Rushkoff who had been elected president just over a year ago and you had run on a platform of make America imaginative again 
So if you had felt actually what's really needed is a big push through education, through university, through people's workplace to really give, to, to sort of boost that, that sort of power of imagination and the ability to look for possibilities and solutions, what might be some of the things you would do in your first hundred days in office? As president? Yeah, why not? I mean, can the president do anything? Uh, <laughs> well, let's assume let's assume he can. Yeah, I mean, if I was in charge, if I could wave some sort of magic wand yeah, exactly. and shift and shift things, um, then I guess we got to look at the high leverage points in our society. Um, I would probably. Uh, um, Institute to start, you know, some kind of, you know, guaranteed minimum income or guaranteed uh, minimum assets so that people didn't have to worry about their job in terms of survival. You know, I would accept the fact that we make enough stuff that we don't need to employ people just so they can live that the reason to employ people should be to get the work we need done. So I would, I would kind of reverse the way we think of employment, right? Employment is not a way of justifying giving people a portion of what we have in abundance, that employing people, that jobs should be about accomplishing work that we actually need to be done. Um, so it's it's I know it's radical. It sounds communist, um, but it's what work is for. Well, what do we need um, that in itself? Would turn around so much that would change the energy crisis because we wouldn't be burning oil just to justify employing people. I mean, it would it would change the nature of production and consumption on its own. Um, I would. Uh, I would restore education to its more original purpose, which was not to train people for employment, but in some ways to compensate people for life as workers. You know, it was about uh, uh, education was, was a kind of a, a luxury. It was to have an educated population who could make uh, voting choices. D democracy doesn't work if everybody's stupid. So it was really about that, giving the worker some some uh, experience beyond digging coal out of the caves, that they would be able to appreciate great art and literature. They would be able to read the newspaper and make informed decisions about governance. So it's just a, a – that's a pretty – straightforward one. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I would start I'd start with just those two, and I think it would it would flip things around a lot. Yes. Wonderful. Douglas, thank you so much. Yeah, just if you have any last thoughts on around the, the, the topic of imagination that I haven't asked you a question to stimulate. Um, Yeah, I think a lot of imagination has to do 
with with celebrating and expressing what makes us uniquely human. We're we're currently, if you look at the imagination industries, they're hoping to increasingly rely on technologies as a substitute for imagination. They want to use machine learning to teach AIs how to write screenplays and make paintings and do all the things we normally associate with human creativity. And what they don't understand is while you might get new permutations of things, it's all based on what's happened before, you know, and, and I think human imagination derives from something other than repeated experience. I think there's something strange and wonderful going on. I think that there's a, a, an essential difference between the, the unresolved an unresolvable work of a David Lynch um, from all the other so-called prestige television on cable. You know, the, that real creativity is and real imagination provides less answers than it provokes questions. It initiates a process that most people today can't tolerate because they want conclusion, they want answers, they want endings. And imagination doesn't do that. Imagination opens things. It creates questions. Imagination is not death. It's life. And most people don't like life. They want the, the security of death. <laughs>